Amen. Amen. Cool. So we are approaching uh, Lent. We're approaching Easter, uh, looking at, uh, at what, uh, what is about to come and what is about to happen in terms of our celebration of Lent or of Easter as a community, uh, baptisms on Easter Sunday, Good Friday service at the farm, and just, uh, just sort of asking the Lord, how does he want us to engage uh, with, this, uh, with this as a community? Uh, it, was, it was actually one of those sermon series that was fairly challenging challenging uh, for me to write in terms of figuring out uh, just just a clear sense from the Lord of what his heart for us in all of this was. And uh, what, what seemed really important to me was uh, a sense that there's, you know, Jesus in this uh, last um, week of his life, the last really six days, uh, had, had this incredible, uh, almost like a menu planned of training and equipping and empowering uh, for his disciples. That there were some things that, uh, that were sort of under the gun, under the pressure in the moment of, hey, I am just about to be crucified here and resurrected and ultimately uh, be uh, lifted up to heaven. Like, like the end of my three years of ministry is coming. And it's like, there's, there's, I've got a week here to get some stuff into these guys' hearts. That they that they haven't quite got yet, and so we if we if we look in the book of John, and that's going to be our framework for this series, um, in just those uh, just those that last week of Jesus' ministry, actually takes up nine chapters of the book of John. So just about forty percent of the book of John is just one week of Jesus' life. He's trying to cram a lot into that space, and uh, and so there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of whoa, uh, we've got to get this story out in, in the heart of the writer, John, and I'm just wrestling with how do we capture that? And I think that framework of understanding uh, preparation, uh, Jesus' heart to help us understand what we would need as people to go into that next phase uh, of our journey is, is really important. I want to tell you briefly the story of, uh, of an astronaut, actually, a guy named uh, Colonel James Irwin. Uh, when I was a child, um, I grew up in a small town, uh, in Saskatchewan, it was a farming community, and we were uh, living in, you know, that little town. And there was a, a business right across the street from the highway uh, that we lived in. It was a, this big sort of farm equipment place, and the owner was a, a Christian, the father of my friend Corey, and he always had a passion to see that people were connecting with the Jesus story in our little town. It was a little town of about 450 people, and uh, and and he just every year managed to have a big celebration. It worked for his business, for getting the farmers in and getting them connected and, you know, keeping that relationship built. It was a, on one level a marketing thing, but also his heart was evangelism. And one year he brought in this, uh, this uh, astronaut, uh, Jim Irwin. Uh, Jim Irwin was uh, one of the uh, astronauts who walked on the moon. I think he was the eighth astronaut to walk on the moon. Uh, he was on the Apollo 15 crew. He was the first person to drive uh, a lunar rover. And as a little kid who is like, what am I going to be when I grow up? Like that idea of, like I'm still a huge space nerd even now, but that idea of, of what it is and what it's about to, to go into space, to be in the moon, all of that kind of deal was just so big in my mind. Like I was gonna go on the Millennium Falcon, none of this miserable rocket stuff, but um, it, was, it, was, it was something that was important. And so I, I had the opportunity to hear this guy speak. 
And I remember just kind of sitting there in the crowd. I was probably maybe only 10 years old at the time, but I remember just sitting there with just this incredible uh, rapt attention, listening to this guy tell the story, just of the practical stuff of being on the moon. Like he talked about his spacesuit not having uh, good moisture handling capabilities so that he was like dripping with sweat in his gloves when he took his gloves off and how bad it smelled. And for me, I I was just like, whoa, that's awesome, <laughs> right? Like, like real deal. And the stories of, of the training and the preparation in particular uh, were, were, were some of what, what caught me. And how many of you guys know what that's like, even uh, watching any kind of movie? Is your favorite scene like the training scenes in the Rocky movies? I mean, if you're old enough to have seen those ancient movies. Wait a second, I should do something more relevant. Uh, but uh, those, the training scenes, that, those scenes of, of being equipped, like there's something about that moment of like, man, I've got to have this stuff sorted before the big event happens. Uh, if you're, if you're going to be an astronaut, there are some things that you need to know, right? There are some things that you have to have figured out. Like, did you remember to pack your spacesuit? Like, that's probably pretty high on the list, right? Um, there, there's a sense, a sense of anticipation, a sense of uh, the, the same thing that we feel when we're about to go on a flight. How many of you have just been on a long trip? I remember we did a trip to Africa a number of years ago. We were uh, traveling to Lagos, Nigeria, and we were going to do it just with carry-on. And I just remember literally like a week before we were about to go, I was like, where can I get a collapsible water bottle? And I was literally willing to drive, because this was before Amazon, uh, willing to drive like anywhere in the city of, of Toronto to get a water bottle that would be like a flat water bottle because I could take as little stuff as possible. I was trying to figure, I spent like an hour deliberating over, am I going to take three pairs of underpants or two? Like how humid is it in Lagos, Nigeria? Will it dry out fast enough if I wash it in the sink? I don't know. You know, we're trying to figure these things out. Are we prepared? And I think that's what it was for Jesus in that moment. Like the time is coming. Like there's something happening here. These guys have to be ready for what it's like when I go away. And I think there's some things in the stories that uh, Jesus just wanted us to connect with um, in the experiences that he had with his disciples uh, in John chapter 11 through 19. Uh, so the things I think Jesus wanted us to be prepared for that are tied to these stories are, are really simple things. Are, are we prepared for misunderstood lives of extravagant worship? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, but there's something about a, a life of worship that he was calling his disciples to, that he knew that when people looked at, at, at him and what they were doing and the lives that they were about to live, that, that people wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't grasp it. How do we walk in that as a community? Uh, how do I f have these disciples follow me in doing hard things? Like there's some hard decisions that they're going to have to make. How do I help them be prepared to make the hard choices in life? How do I help them be prepared to live sacrificial lives? And we see that in, in Jesus' parable of unless a, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it'll bear no fruit. And he unpacks a whole bunch of stuff in there for us. Uh, we look uh, in, in a couple, three weeks, we're going to look at uh, what do you do with the doubts and suspicions of others? When you give your life to Jesus and you begin to follow him, there's a way in which people look at you through a different lens. 
Uh, people might not follow the way you want them to follow. You might tell them about Jesus excitedly, and they might not be willing to, to grasp that. They may look at you like you're nuts. How do you deal with uh, those looks from your friends? Uh, how do you live as clean in an unclean world? Uh, how do you do with feelings of betrayal when others betray you or, or walk away from you while you're following the calling that God has for you? And how do you deal with social pressure to deny your faith? So those are just real things that Christians uh, deal with uh, in, in a rather, sometimes the world that we're in is kind of a harsh and a hostile environment. Um, and so that's just really practical stuff for us in some of these uh, stories. In the book of John, uh, more than the other books, Jesus doesn't seem to really tell parables as much. Uh, in the, that's not what, the way John has written the book, but he's written the book in such a way that the experiences that Jesus has are the parables. The experiences are the teaching. And John crafts those stories in a way that we get something amazing out of it. And so uh, through John uh, chapter 11, uh, 12, 13, we have these incredible experiences. And then in John 14, uh, he begins to teach on the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to tie some of this uh, teaching uh, through experience that Jesus has had with teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit and his ability to, uh, to empower us and to transform us and to, and to prepare us for the journey ahead. John 14, after all of these experiences and, and Jesus knows the day is approaching, he says this, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes through a bit of a lengthy explanation on the Spirit and, and on what their journey is like together. And then near the end of John 14, he says this, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So the answer to these big questions and these big challenges is the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to just begin to sort of unpack what walking uh, in the Spirit is like and how that helps us with those big questions in life. So that's the framework. That's the outline for the series. Um, I want to bring us back to Jim Irwin for just a second. Uh, one of the beautiful things about his story, one of the things that really captured me when I heard it, and, and you could read it in a book. It's actually out of print. I looked it up on Amazon. I could buy it for $237, uh, which I probably won't do because I've lost my copy a long time ago, uh, but it was a really impactful book. It was actually the very first nonfiction book I, I ever read other than the scriptures. And this is what he said. He said, I was a bump on the Christian log until I met Jesus on the moon. Not everybody can say that. Um, <laughs> like that's crazy, right? All of the years of sacrifice and training. The heart condition that followed, what he's talking about is he actually developed a physical heart condition. He developed a, an issue with his heart that he ultimately died from in his early 60s. He said, all of it was worth it for just one glimpse of my creator. And the way he describes that experience, uh, he was uh, on the moon, he was uh, collecting some rock samples and he had an apparatus uh, for drilling that he had to, to erect while he was out there working. It was at a very difficult time uh, when he put on a spacesuit while he was up there in the, in the lunar lander. Uh, he kinked the straw so he couldn't drink any water and he was actually uh, kind of really, really struggling. He was sweating out so much fluid but at the same time he couldn't take in any fluids and, uh, and actually Actually, uh, the monitors that they were reading back in, in Houston uh, were showing him to have like a significant heart issue uh, developing as he was out there working and they decided in their wisdom not to tell him about it because he would be worried. And uh, so he's working away out there on the moon with this developing heart condition. And he said, he describes having an experience of, of looking up from the moon at the earth and seeing uh, the, the, or looking up, looking up at the earth and seeing uh, it up there and it being about the size of his thumbnail. 
And he's trying to erect this apparatus uh, to do an experiment, and, and it's just not working. He just can't figure it out. And, and he says, as he says, he was like a Christian bump on a log. He didn't really walk with Jesus. He, he was like most people in those days who attended church from time to time, but it wasn't particularly relevant to his life. And, and he, he, he prayed for the first time in years, and he said, Jesus, help me do this thing. And he said he, he literally felt Jesus standing behind him on the moon and, and whisper to him through the vacuum of space how to set up this apparatus. He describes this incredible experience of Jesus speaking to him. And as he erected this, uh, this apparatus for an experiment, it felt like he wasn't erecting uh, something that was uh, an aluminum framework. He felt like he was erecting an altar to the Lord. And, and, and that moment radically changed his life. And he said, if I could do anything, if I could, uh, if it, I would take all the training again, I would get the heart condition again, I would go through all the pain of it again if I knew that Jesus was still on that spot and I would go meet with him again to have that moment of worship. And there's a passion in him uh, for that moment of worship. And wherever he went, he traveled all over the world uh, telling the story, uh, both of his journey as an astronaut and, and telling the story of, uh, of faith uh, that, that he, he gained while he was in that space. Um, and, and always bringing it back to worship, always bringing it back to, to that encounter with the presence of God that he had in that space. And I want to bring us to an encounter that someone had with the presence of God in Jesus' time. So if we can, let's, uh, if, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and look. It's also on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, I think somewhere on one of the back tables, I'm not exactly sure where, uh, there are Bibles that you can just uh, take, just our gift to you. Um, but let me, let's just read this together. John 12, chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance, fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, uh, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not also have me. And so let's just walk through the story and just make a few uh, observations about Mary and her uh, moment of worship that she had. Uh, it was six days before the Passover, so really in that last week uh, of Jesus' life, uh, he came to Bethany uh, where Jesus lived or sorry, where Lazarus lived and, and Jesus had raised him from the grave. You'll remember that we looked at that story uh, last week, this incredible moment of Lazarus uh, coming out of the tomb and, and everybody coming to a place of belief, coming to a faith uh, in Jesus. And I guess apparently between when that happened and now Jesus had gone off and he'd done some other missionary uh, journeys. He'd had some other adventures. He'd gone to speak, into, speak to other people in other towns. But finally he came back to uh, this place and Mary 
in her home. She was probably a businesswoman uh, working with uh, her sister Martha, uh, that they had a place that was sort of a base of operations for Jesus. And she, she's like, we're going to host a dinner for Jesus in his honor. And it's going to be like, like, can you imagine what that's like? Her brother has just come back from the grave. Like she is excited about this. She wants this story told. She wants this uh, uh, adventure to be known. She wants uh, to have everybody who was there just sort of relive that moment together. How many of you remember, you know what that's like. There are times when, when you've had like a victory moment and you just want to gather with your friends and just relive the story and tell the story. And sometimes it's a good story. Sometimes it's a crazy story. I, I remember I, there's moments of those stories after uh, weddings. There's moments of those stories after funerals when families are gathered together. There's moments of those stories after times of intensity and community when we're all together and it's like we're finally sitting on the couch and we're remembering uh, that moment. And so they're gathered. And, and as dinner was given in Jesus' honor, Martha served. Lazarus was reclining at the table with him. There's probably smack talk and, uh, and cajoling and goofing around. They're, they're having a good time. And, uh, and I think that's just a beautiful metaphor for what our Sunday gatherings are meant to be. I think our gatherings, uh, when we as Christians come together, even what we did around the communion table uh, earlier today, remembering the body and the blood of Jesus, it's a gathering of family in, in a home, in a place of hospitality, where we're meant to just relive the story and experience it and enjoy it and connect with the idea that Jesus has done some amazing things among us and to just honor him in that place. Our, what we're doing right now, even just in in preaching the word and remembering the, the word of God is we're telling that story. We're sitting around a table together, remembering the goodness of what Jesus does. And, and, and they're, they're important experiences uh, for us. It says this, then Mary took a pint of pure nard. And I just want us to focus just for a second on that uh, phrase, uh, then Mary. Because we can have family gatherings, we can have church, we can have times of being connected, and we can have times of being together, but sometimes uh, those moments need to go beyond the normal, need to go uh, beyond uh, decorum, need to go beyond the pattern and have something surprising and something crazy and something intimate and amazing happen. And what I love is that in this story, this person, Mary, was just not afraid to change the game. She put this party together. They were all there. They were, they were having a time of, uh, of connecting. They were having a time of, of relationship. But Mary, and we don't know how premeditated this was, but I kind of imagine that she just freaked out. Like, this is a, a time in Jesus' honor. This is an amazing thing that's happening. And I don't, I don't want this to be just like, like another dinner with Jesus. Like, this is, this is not enough. And I imagine she just blew up and went back to the storage room and she got this pint of pure nard, which sounds too much like lard, but it's like, I imagine it was a liquid thing and, and it was this, this spice and she just dumps it out on his feet and it just disrupts the whole program in a crazy way. Sometimes your worship has to interrupt the program. 
It has to interrupt your program. It has to interrupt our conservatism. It has to interrupt our way of being that is so uh, programmed and steady and stayed. Sometimes worship just has to burst out of us in, a, in kind of a radical way. And we just can, can, can only imagine that when Mary, uh, when Mary did this, it was just a, a complete showstopper. And that's the other uh, thing. Like, she probably could have made a nice smell in the room and, and done something touching with Jesus' feet with like a, a couple of milliliters of pure nard. But she didn't. She took a whole pint and she just dumped it on his feet like a pint, so like a liter of, of fluid, right? And she just dumped it on his feet, like way more than you could possibly need, enough to treat a whole body and prepare a whole body for burial. And she dumps it out and it's messy and it splashes on his feet and it rolls out over the floor and begins to spread out. You know what that's like when you spilled milk on the table? It just goes out and spreads out and goes everywhere. It's extravagant and it's wasteful and it's ridiculous. Like she didn't need to do that to make that statement. But sometimes you have to allow worship to come out in a way that's simply messy. It just sometimes gets to be messy. Sometimes it's like just too much. And I know that we're so uncomfortable with that as Canadians, particularly Canadians from the Ottawa Valley. We are so conservative. But there's a call sometimes to simply respond to the incredible beauty of who Jesus is and just let it spill out. Just, just let it spill out and just sometimes let it be messy. And I know that we're uncomfortable with that. But I think uh, our gratitude has to overcome our common sense sometimes. Like, do we get the magnitude of the gift of what Jesus did for us? And when you get the sense of how big that is and how amazing that is and how huge his gift is, a pint of pure nard is really small. It's nothing. Mary adequately valued the gift of Jesus and adequately valued a pint of nard. And she said, pint of nard, nothing. Relationship with Jesus, everything. We have to do that sometimes in our lives. That's to create those spaces of worship. Some of you might think that even owning speakers or owning sound systems and, and what we do to rent this space and, and what we give to, to facilitate these encounters with Jesus, right? That's part of our, our vision, part of our mission as, as a church is to encounter Jesus with our friends and our unchurched friends, to facilitate those encounters. Uh, what we invest in this is just nothing. It's worth nothing compared to the incredible value of what Jesus has done for us. It's a tiny, tiny thing, our little pint of pure nard that we spend on rent for this place. It's nothing for us to be able to be here and to be together in the presence of God. So she took it. It was an expensive perfume. It's okay sometimes for our worship to cost something. It's okay for our worship to cost something. It's okay for it to cost, uh, as, as, as we see right here, it's okay for us it to cost our dignity. 
Like how crazy was that for Mary to literally in this room of dignified people, Jesus, the rabbi, probably the business people that she did business with, who that she'd invited over uh, to the party. And she literally in the middle of the, the room, Jesus' feet are out behind the table and she's behind everybody. You understand they would all be reclining around a table, leaning on their elbows with their feet out like this. Uh, Mary pulls herself out of that scenario. She's probably serving at the time and she comes down on her knees. She breaks this, this jar of perfume out over Jesus' feet and she undoes her hair in the most undignified manner and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Worship has to sometimes cost us our dignity. I've loved seeing that in some of our young people as they're growing in worship. Just seeing them lead worship sometimes at youth group on Tuesday nights is amazing. When they first started leading worship together, they were leading in a place that was like right here, like looking at the songs and singing the songs and trying not to miss any of the words and get all the notes right. And then months and almost a year later, they're, they're looking up and they're connecting and they're, they're, they know the words, they know the songs. They're passionate about Jesus that is growing in them. And they're, they're looking outward and they're leading worship for the people in the back of the room. And that's amazing. And just in the last little while, what I've seen is I have seen what my heart has been longing to see for them as they worship for such a long time, to see full on scrunchy face worshiping Jesus. It looks ridiculous. You, want, you need to know you look ridiculous. And it's so great. It's so great to be the scrunchy face worshiping Jesus. That's the real deal. And that's what it was like for Mary in this moment. It's like there wasn't anybody else in the room. It was just her and Jesus. All of that disappeared and she was before the throne of God. We have to let our worship get outside of ourselves and get to a place where it is realistically expressing our gratitude towards the Father who has created us and made us and saved us and redeemed us. And who are we to bottle that up when worship is happening? Who are we to bottle that up? Honestly, to bottle it up and to keep it locked inside is, to be fully honest, a lie. Because we aren't showing who he is and what he's done. Go scrunchy face for Jesus. It's okay. It's okay. So Mary uh, takes this pint of nard, she breaks it, and it says the whole house is filled with the fragrance. When we worship in a way that is extravagant and free like that, it changes the atmosphere. It changes the atmosphere in our town. It changes the atmosphere in this building. It changes the atmosphere. There's something about what happens spiritually that everybody smells something sweet and amazing when we release ourselves to worship Jesus. It's not just gonna affect us. It's scrunchy face all for him, but everybody else is blessed by what's going on in this space. And, and don't we want to change the atmosphere in this town? 
don't we want to change what it feels like when you drive through Carlton Place? It talks about that in some of the old revivals when people would come into a town where George Whitfield was, was preaching. They would, they would come into the town and they would know that there was something different before their horse even got through the town limits. Like there's something radically different that we want people to experience when they come within 10 kilometers of this church. You know, often we talk about the guy in, in, in Carlton Place. There's a, an imaginary guy that I often remind us of, and he's sitting in a, a creaky chair, uh, a lazy boy, and he's just a few streets over, and his feet are up, and he's watching Netflix, and he's got the curtains drawn, and it's a dark room. And he doesn't know that he could be here worshiping Jesus with you. He doesn't know that. But if we worship Jesus with passion, there's something about our worship when it gets unchained that that guy can smell it. And he wakes up and is maybe drawn to Jesus. If we lift Jesus up, he draws people to himself. The story goes on. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? And that is just a huge challenge for us. Simply what, what Judas did there was he did not enter into an atmosphere of worship or a mode of worship. He remained in an evaluative mode in the presence of worship. And man, that is something that we are so guilty of, that I am so guilty of some of the time. I don't know how many times I've gone to conferences and worship uh, experiences and other churches with my scorecard in hand. Well, the worship, how many of you have done, I mean, you guys have done that. You guys, you guys probably did it last week too. Worship was really good last week. And some of you be like, maybe worship wasn't good last week. Uh, the week before, was it like this? Was it like that? It was okay. It was all right. That song was really good. That song wasn't great. We come to worship with an evaluative mode and we miss the very presence of Jesus at the heart of it. We have to stay out of that space of keeping score, uh, of, of valuing things. Uh, Judas is, was, was like that. He was, he was like, why wasn't this money given to the poor? But, but he didn't even really actually care about the poor. He, he saw what it cost and he thought it cost too much. He thought it wasn't worth it. Clearly Jesus didn't have a place of status in his mind, but it goes on and, 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 and we see in the story that he did not uh, say this because he cared. He, he used to help himself to what was in the money bag. Very often if we're really honest about our hearts when we're in a place of trying to evaluate worship and we're judging it, that wasn't really good for me. That didn't really connect. Uh, I didn't really get it this week. It wasn't, uh, guess what? You know what we should all say to each other when, when somebody says, I, I didn't get anything out of worship this week? We weren't worshiping you. <laughs> Come on. We weren't worshiping you. We weren't. We're worshiping Jesus. Very often, if we're in a place that we're just stuck evaluating worship and what it's like and what it's about and was it good or was it not bad, very, very often at the heart of that is, is something in us that's just purely selfish. We just, we just instinctively don't like the idea that uh, it's, it, it, the attention isn't on us. We, we think that all of this should be happening so that we get something out of it. 
Will those 40 moments, those four songs, whatever it is that we're doing, I promise you, uh, we, we're doing it to facilitate an encounter with Jesus for you. But it is about that encounter with Jesus. It's not about the form. It's not about the, the sound. It's not about the mics. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about, is there an encounter with Jesus happening with you? Can you see past all of that? Something that we want to call ourselves to be able to do as much as possible. And I know it's really hard is to just imagine that we're standing here and that you, you can make all of this just disappear. Like, like once you're here, like make the speaker disappear, make the, the worship leader disappear, make me disappear and see yourself before the throne of God. Because that's what it's about. It's, a, it's not about how we facilitate it. It's about what we're facilitating. It has to be uh, about the encounter with Jesus. If we objectify worship, it's actually self-worship. It's actually all about us. So Jesus is so gracious. He says, leave her alone, he replied. And what I love is just that he replied at all. Right? Jesus had every right to flip them the bird and just ignore them. <laughs> right? He really did. He really did, but he's so humble and so gracious and so kind that he unpacks it for them. He, he, when he defends the space of worship, uh, Jesus says, okay, Judas, you know, you, you've got your own issues here, but, but I want you to know that this thing that's happening with Mary is something that's meant to happen with Mary. So, so give her a break. Take your eyes off of her. And he defends this space of worship around himself and says, when you come into that space with me, it is okay. This is a safe place for you. I'm guarding you in this space. Don't worry about the person who's watching. Don't worry about the person who's evaluating. Don't worry about the person who's behind you. So many times, especially when I was young and entering into worship experiences and just sort of learning to, to be free a little bit and learning to sort of express my heart before the Lord, um, I remember that I had this little kink in my neck. Like, who's watching? Right? I remember that first time, like, I ever sort of reached, got past the... You know, you, I've, you've seen me do this before. Like when you're worshiping and you're learning to worship and you're really nervous about it, the first thing you do is you kind of do this hand up maneuver. And that's like a huge step for you. And then you kind of do that extension maneuver. And that was like a big, big deal for you. And then finally you're like, woo! You're worshiping Jesus and you're, and you're, you're free. You can raise your, your hands a little bit. But along with that is often like, who just saw that? <laughs> Like we freak out about people watching, but Jesus was really cautious and careful and gentle to create that safe space around Mary. And he actually rebuked Judas and said, leave her alone. She's with me right now. And you can know that that's Jesus' heart for you as you try to find space uh, to worship him. He, he creates a space like that for you. And then he's so gracious. He, he, he explains what's going on. And I love that he does this uh, in this way. He says this, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Uh, and what I love about that is, um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack in that, just in that understanding what was going on. But just this one thought that I want to take from this idea is that worship is often an acting out of future glory. 
And that's what I mean when I say you imagine that the worship team isn't here. You imagine that the band isn't here. You let all of that stuff pass away and see yourself before the throne of God. Mary knew uh, that something was happening. She knew that Jesus could very well be killed. And she was in a place where she was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give this and we're going to wrap his body in this someday. But there was something in her that said, I want, I want to know that he's going to experience this when he's alive. I'm going to act out this future thing that I have planned for it to happen, but we're going to experience a little bit of the future in the here and now. We're going to experience a little bit of the future in the present. And that's what Mary wanted to do. She was having a foretaste of the love that she was going to pour out on Jesus uh, when he died and when he was buried. She's like, I, I just want, I just can't wait for this. And imagine what that was like for Jesus' perspective because he understood all that. Jesus literally got to visit his own funeral. He literally got to visit his own burial and see all of that incredible love and tenderness and compassion that Mary was going to pour out on his body when it died. He got to be alive and experience that. He got to experience her worship, her joy, her her pain, and her grief in a waking moment. Imagine showing up at your own funeral and hearing the words of appreciation and love and care that people might want to share about your life. That's what worship is for us. Uh, we know that Christ is risen. We know that he's seated at, at the right hand of God the Father. But what we do when we're worshiping is we make all of this disappear and we put ourselves in front of the throne. And we experience a foretaste of heaven. And remember the creatures gathered around the throne crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we taste a moment of that together here when we worship Jesus. We taste a little piece of heaven. We can't wait. And he loves that taste of, of our worship that we give him that he's ultimately going to experience for eternity. We get a foretaste of it. And it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, just to unpack these last two verses, it says this, you will always have the poor among you. Um, worship is meant to be a shared encounter between us and a radically diverse, fully integrated community. Uh, when, when we do something extravagant in terms of worship, when we have this uh, sound system and when we put this experience together when, to, to have a, a time with the Father, we're just meant to invite people. We're meant to create a space of hospitality for people who are radically different from ourselves, for people who are on the outside, for people who are marginalized, for the people who are broken. It is meant to be an experience for them. When we talk about what we do uh, as a church for mission, ministry, outreach, all of that uh, kind of stuff, yeah, we are our heart at, at OVV. We, we need to say, even, even though we're doing this thing here, uh, that we're, we're collecting some canned goods and we're just giving them away. That's kind of a us to them kind of deal. But our heart, the height, the plumb line for healthy ministry for us is not to and for the poor. It's about living with and among them. That, that, that life is that we have with Jesus is meant to be shared. That the, 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 the meek and the poor are, are, are us. We are them. They are us. And we're meant to be in community and in relationship with them. Jesus uh, 
just closes with this phrase, but you will not always have me. And he's pointing to that three days when he's buried and in the grave and the grief that they're going to experience and, and feel. Um, but all of that ministry, all of that stuff we do, that day to day, that doing the dishes, that making our homes places that are hospitable for our unchurched friends to come in, the setting up of the sound gear, the setting up of the kids' church stuff, uh, the putting together the bulletin, the writing of the sermons, all of that stuff is the day-to-day, but it's all about those moments of the presence. It's all about that space of him. They're, they're all a part of that worship, but it would, be, it would be foolish of us to let it just be that and miss those moments uh, of intimacy and interaction. Uh, with Jesus. Enjoy the moments when he's poured out. Enjoy the moments when he's present. Stop the show and just be there. And enjoy it. And love it. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but back in Genesis 18, there's this uh, incredible story with uh, with Abraham and Sarah, and and Abraham and Sarah are hanging out in their home, and one day he comes, and the Lord comes to visit, and there, it says there were three men. It was the Lord who came to visit. So we have this incredible picture theologically of the Trinity, even back in the story of Abraham. And Abraham basically freaks out and he says, you guys just stay right here. I'm going to wash your feet. Uh, I'm going I'm to make that happen. Uh, and I'm going to go get you guys some food. And it goes on. I says, don't let me, don't pass by your servant. And then it says this. He says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Will I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves? And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour, knead it and make some cakes. And I just love that as an image for us and what we're supposed to be about. Like Jesus is here, let's make some cake. (laughs) Right? Like Jesus is here. Like Sunday morning, Jesus is here. Get the heck out of bed and get your friends out of bed. He's here. Let's do what is required to create a hospitable place for the presence of Jesus. Let's just bake some cakes together and have a party. Jesus is here. We can't miss it. We can't miss it. He loves to have a relationship with us like that. So it's 12:12, uh, 12, 12 and, and the time is uh, is you know ticking away on us. But I didn't want us to do a whole teaching on worship without us doing a little bit of worship. So why don't we just stand?